This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. It's so good to have you along for the Country Hour today. Hope your day is going well so far. Uh, between now and the news at one, of course, off to Mount Barker for the results of the cattle market just before the news at one. Really going to be interesting to see what happens there because there has been quite a run on the cattle prices recently. So uh, keen to see the yarding and the prices today. Tracy Kilner along just before the news at one. And are you thinking about spreading some fertiliser on your farm? And if you are... How do you go about making your in-season fertiliser decisions? Well, Joe Granich farms at Moorine Rock in the eastern wheat belt, and here's his current plan. Put it like probably 70, 80 kgs of SOA up front on uh, a lot of the medium and lighter soils and pretty well left the real heavy country. And uh, that's tracking along right at the moment, you know, because they haven't been big rains. They've been um, nice sort of rains and it's all looking not too bad. Does that sound like you? Well, today you are going to hear the pros and the cons of adopting a more scientific approach for in-season fertiliser planning using all sorts of equipment, technology and data that feature panel discussion for you after half past 12 today. And just start thinking about it because there, if, uh, there is a question around that and you want to put it to the panel, it would be great to hear from you today. 0448 to text through. Six past 12 here on the Country Hour and there is a new billionaire in town in the Kimberley with Andrew and Nicola Forrest purchasing Jubilee Downs and Quandon Downs pastoral stations. Now, these adjoining stations total more than 220,000 hectares and have a combined carrying capacity of 11,000 head of cattle. The stations were formerly owned under a partnership between Texas billionaire and environmentalist Ed Bass and the Anderson family, who managed the property for more than 40 years. The Forest Families Harvest Road Group already manages five pastoral properties. That's Mindaroo, Mindaroo Coast, Mindaroo South, Brickhouse and Manilia. And the group also owns the Harvey Beef Processing Facility and is developing a major finishing facility at Coogent, which is near Mora in the wheat belt. The new Kimberley stations are going to become a key part of the group's vertically integrated gate-to-plate beef business. Andrew Forrest is the chairman and founder of the Tatarang Group, which owns Harvest Road. Andrew Forrest, what does the purchase of these Kimberley stations mean to you? It's deeply personal. Uh, we've we've been visiting and Jack Rowing as my family, my brother and I, in and around these stations for oh, generations. And uh, of course, Alexander Forrest um, explored this region in incredibly challenging conditions. He nearly lost his life in the Kimberleys. And I've just been a big admirer of the Kimberleys, but we've been, as a family, very much focused on the Pilbara. We've always looked at opportunities for the Kimberleys. And when Keith Anderson's property came up, we just watched and waited because we felt that Keith, being just the straight-up serious uh, stockman that he is and knowing of his very deep 
love for the land. My brother used to work for Keith when he was head stockman at um, Leopold Downs. And he said, look, Keith won't just select on price. He'll, he'll select on people who really love and care for the environment, who are capable of improving his legacy with cattle and um, have a straight up and warm and wonderful relationship with the elders and their families of our region. And so my brother said, look, you should really put in an offer because Keith and his partner, Ed Bass, you know, they'll select on who will do the right thing by the country, the environment, the community, the first Australians, but the wider community as well. And that's pretty well what happened. So the whole process for us was very family, very deeply personal. So how do you intend to honour that legacy of the properties that sort of the Andersons have set over so many decades? Yeah, look, it's, I, I uh, am really delighted with his own care for country. You know, I loved getting in there and meeting the Indigenous stockmen and, you know, how Keith and I got greeted when we went through community by the Indigenous elders. It was just it was just a lovely feeling. It was like being back amongst old friends and family. Uh, and Keith really holds the respect of stockmen, Indigenous stockmen, First Australians and community members. And to us, it was actually a very real honour that he and Ed picked our family and particularly Harvest Road. They loved the dream and the vision of having a interconnected group of properties which could all work together to really evaluate the consistency of a great cattle line up and down the state of Western Australia from Coogeon north of Perth to Harvey Beef south of Perth and really put the state in touch with value-adding as opposed to just sending cattle away live where all the jobs and value, all the employment goes overseas. But value-adding and keeping the jobs, keeping the employment here in Western Australia, I know that also appealed very much to them as well because it is a really strong vision of ours that we should be exporting our value-added products and not just simply exporting our live cattle. My understanding is the Forest family bid wasn't the highest. So what do you think it was about your bid that sort of made it rise really to the top of the list it was, of bidders? Um, it was, um, uh, well, uh, let me just tell you what Keith said, Belinda. They didn't use price as the only criteria. In fact, I don't think it was the most important criteria. Uh, I think the most important criteria was, do you have a record of really looking after the environment, of really enhancing the environment? Do you have a record of breeding fantastic cattle? And could we actually improve on Keith and Ed's own multi-decade one cattle line? Do you have a record in working with the people they and we love, which is our first Australians? And do you have a record in improving their lives, not through welfare or handing out money, but through the hard yards, which is integrating with their communities, training their people, particularly training their young people, and creating employment and long-term opportunities so that they're not looking for any handout. They're more than capable of standing on their own two feet as very proud Indigenous Australians um, and cutting their own way in the world, you know, not relying on on handouts, which which Keith um, really saw as, the, as being part of the decline of Indigenous Australians. And, you know, I completely agree with that. You know, I see welfare and royalties being very much behind the decline of uh, Australians really everywhere. But when you give people employment, when you give people jobs and opportunities and when they 
make a fist of them, which they always do. Indigenous Australians are some of the best and most progressive people we've had in our company at Fortescue and Harvey Beef. You know, we have well over 10% of our total workforce, I think it's up around 14%, is Indigenous Australians and we're a very competitive company and we have a strong family culture and Indigenous Australians um, have been a very big part of forming that family culture for Fortescue and for Harvey Beef and Harvest Road. And so I think all of those things factored into Keith and Ed's thinking. Well, you say that the price wasn't the most important part of the bidding process, but everyone's always interested in the price and the speculation is that it's around the $30 million price tag. How accurate is that? Look, I think we can keep the speculation around there. I think if Keith wants to disclose the price, it's up to him. This is The Country Hour on ABC WA and this afternoon you're catching up with Andrew Forrest, the new owner of two new pastoral stations in the Kimberley, including Jubilee Downs. Andrew Forrest, the battle for ownership of the station has upset the area's native title holders who wanted to buy the properties for themselves to protect the culturally significant Fitzroy River. The E. Matawara traditional owners, along with some investors, including the US-based Nature Conservancy and the Kimberley Agricultural and Pastoral Company, offered $25 million but were knocked out in the first round of negotiations. What sort of relationship can you forge with the traditional owners knowing that they really wanted to be there as the new owner? Yeah, look, I think um, I think uh, ownership of land is a bit of a white fella construct. The Indigenous people of that region have been custodians of that country for tens of thousands of years, and that's not going to stop. We absolutely welcome them. We welcome their old people and their elders to come out and spend time with us and spend spend time on country. You know, they're wonderful people. They They keep the land clean. They don't leave the gates open, they understand it's it's a commercial property which is employing all Australians, including including First Australians. The protection of the Fitzroy is as sacred to us as it is to Indigenous people and we look forward to working with them hand in glove to keep the Fitzroy pristine and, and beautiful, sacred sites deeply respected and as importantly the Indigenous wildlife you know, I see the wild turkeys, I see the wallabies, I see uh, so much uh, rare and endangered species, which is across the whole of the Kimberleys, which I want to work with the Indigenous elders to ensure that those rare and endangered species become as abundant as what they ever were. And we're able to jointly, hand in glove with the elders, look after that country and in particular, as I said, as importantly as the country, looking after those animals and those species. Now, beyond the gates of the property and talking about that broader Kimberley environment, especially the future of the Fitzroy River, and there are tensions around its future. It's sort of being pulled in several different directions. The agricultural sector really keen to draw water from the river just to realise what it says is the full potential of the industry in the north and create lots of jobs and saying this is really a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And on the other hand, environmentalists and some of the local Indigenous groups are opposed to any surface water extraction from the Fitzroy River just because of the biodiversity and cultural value. What is your position on the future of the Fitzroy? Look, I'm an ecologist. I'm not a agronomist. So I do tend to look at the whole of country, the whole of ecology. You know, 
not being of that particular scientific discipline, I, I wouldn't get drawn on it too much. But ecologically, I would say how nature has done it so far, she's done a pretty good job. And if we can preserve what nature's done and maybe enhance it here or there, I think that's fantastic. The question of wholesale extraction of water, I would think environmentally, would start to threaten some of the uh, rare and endangered species, which I've referred to earlier. And I would say you'd have to tread extremely carefully before you would look at doing that. I also think that the premium cattle business has a really strong future. I think that artificial meat to replace, you know, the bulk product, which might go into burgers or cut down Brazilian rainforests. I think fake meat, artificially grown meat, vegetable-based meat really has a huge future. But I think premium grass-fed cattle will always be the favourite protein around the world. And we can produce that in the Kimberleys and I think we can go head-to-head for employment, head-to-head for value, certainly head-to-head for generating economy as any of the industries which use bulk water, bulk machines and the like to, say, for instance, grow rice. So just to be clear, you at at this stage uh, ruling out any water allocations from the Fitzroy for agriculture in the Kimberley? No, look, I have only been to the Kimberleys, I don't know, 20, 30 times in my life. I'm no expert, so I'm not ruling anything in or out. What I can say is that I think nature is doing a fantastic job and that owners like Keith and Karen Anderson have been incredibly sensitive to the environment and how they've raised one of the best lines of pastoral cattle that I've ever seen. And we intend to continue that legacy. So, no, I wouldn't rule out things which I don't understand completely, but I can give you my personal views. Now, you are now neighbours with a few other Australian billionaires. It's a sort of billionaire's row in the Kimberley with Gina Reinhart owning Fossil Downs, Kerry Stokes owning Napier Downs, uh, Boonaba and Mount House stations. Do you see the three of you working collaboratively to um, discuss the future of the Fitzroy or, or the Kimberley going into the future? Yeah, look, um, uh, I don't find Gina any more approachable than anyone else does. But I know Kerry is a... Um, is a really great Australian. He's as straight as the as uh, the day is long, and he's been around that country forever. So I think it'll be very much down to the actual station managers, um, you know. And I think, provided the managers are encouraged, as they certainly will be by me, um, to be really cooperative with all other pastoral property managers to protect and look after each other's cattle, to return them when they when they come into yards and I think most importantly to encourage, strongly encourage what I've done all my life which is work closely with our first Australians to really encourage them to come back out on the land, to strap up on a horse, to come and join me tailing cattle and to learn all those beautiful careers which the Australian pastoral sector can afford people. It's obviously not just a um, monetary earning career, it is a immensely satisfying, hard-working, very Australian career, which I'd recommend to all Australians, particularly First Australians. What's the first job for these pastoral stations? You're the new owner. Oh, What's the starting point? Uh, the starting point will be, and Keith is on to it, doing a, doing a clean muster and branding. We'd also like to do a wildlife survey to work out where 
a range of becoming rare Australian species are across the stations and ensure that we can protect and enhance those communities. And I'll be sitting around the table with the elders because I love them. You know, the more you know Aboriginal people, you know, the more you love Aboriginal people. That's what I've been taught by my own elders when I was a little kid and I found it to be true. And also the Nature Conservancy are really admire the work that they do. We work hand in glove in some pretty big projects already, which Minery Foundation funds with the Australian Nature Conservancy. So I see the conservation groups and the Indigenous groups as real and dear friends of ours with a common direction for the entire Kimberleys, not just uh, Jubilee. Andrew Forrest, thank you for sharing your vision of your two new pastoral properties in the Kimberley with us here on The Country Hour today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Belinda. It's been great talking to you. Andrew Forrest, he is the new owner of two Kimberley pastoral stations. They are Jubilee Downs and Quanbin Downs pastoral stations. I should just add too, as you would have heard in the news at 12 o'clock, that traditional owners in WA's Kimberley have launched a last-minute bid to stop the sale of Jubilee Downs Station. The Yannan Nunyura Aboriginal Corporation, which put in that bid for $25 million for the stations, is asking the WA Lands Minister Ben Wyatt to withhold consent for the sale and the Corporation Vice-Chair Anthony McClarty saying that the Jubilee homestead is built on a stock route and he's worried about access to country. Uh, Updates on that progress in the story throughout the day here on ABC. Also, there's more of the story online for you. There is a link on the ABC Rural Facebook page for you, just to make it easier. And quite a few comments gathering if you'd like to take part in that conversation. Jane says, what about the Aboriginal Corporation that put in a bid to buy the stations, create work for the community and protect the Fitzroy River? If it wasn't about money, then you would have chosen them. They couldn't compete with billionaires like Twiggy and it was about the money. Elders states that the Aboriginal Corporation couldn't compete with the price willing to be paid by other interested parties. Jane says, that's business, baby. Phil says it was an open market tender. I imagine there were other interested parties who couldn't compete financially either. And Jenny says, hope he's not a front man for the Chinese. Be part of the conversation on the ABC Rural Facebook page. Or as always... Text through here, 0448 922 604. On ABC WA, this is the Country Hour and it's 23 past 12. Well, Elders real estate agent Greg Smith has been coordinating the sale of the two Kimberley stations. He says the sale is a terrific result for the Kimberley and the cattle industry. We've got a situation that 14 people expressed an interest to purchase the property and They were nearly all people from within the industry. So it just demonstrates that there's a terrific amount of confidence out there in the cattle industry at the moment. And, um, you know, I think all the fundamentals of the industry are strong. We've got the Australian cattle herd at one of its lowest points ever or for a long, long time. You know, I think we've got our markets are diversified enough that there's the confidence that there's not going to be a, uh, a sudden crash in the market. And I think that recent court decision regarding the live export ban, I think that's probably put some more buoyancy into the market as far as confidence goes because I think following that court decision, we're not going to see a situation repeated where there's, you know, with a stroke of a pen, the industry will be decimated by, you know, a unilateral decision. And just with the sale, Greg, did the price exceed your expectations? 
Oh, look, I'd say that the price, um, it's a good price, but it didn't exceed our expectations. It's probably met our expectations. Um, I mean, look, you know, we're dealing with a property that's got 11,000 of some of the best drought master cattle in West, in the northern Australia on it. And, um, you know, people can't really underestimate the value that people in the industry put on the ability to um, secure 40 years of, of stringent breeding. And just to confirm, it was more than $30 million. Yes, I can confirm. The, the purchase, it was the sale price will exceed $30 million. And under $40 million? Yeah, under $40. million is not a very big spread if you say it fast. <laughs> Greg, is the price a record price for the region? Look, if it was extrapolated out to a value on a per head carrying capacity and a per head of cattle on the property, I think it would have to be very close to the, the highest price ever received in the Kimberley. There may be a higher price for places, I think, Camballon that had some irrigation and that on it, or Pardue, but for just a straight-out pastoral grazing enterprise, I think it would have to be up there. Elders Real Estate Agent Greg Smith with James Liveris, 26 past 12. Peter Camp is the owner of nearby Calieda Station. He grew up in the Kimberley, and back in the 1970s, he worked with Keith Anderson, who's been managing Jubilee Downs Pastoral Station for more than 40 years. Peter Camp says when it comes to being an exemplary land steward, Keith Anderson is second to none. The one that uh, really uh, made, obviously, uh, Keith and Jubilee stand out was towards, uh, uh, I suppose, through BTEC, uh, um, Keith uh, reduced his uh, numbers at Jubilee in those days. He didn't have Quambin and Laurel at that stage and uh, uh, ran back at a more of a conservative stock rate, which was sustainable, and uh, uh, really made an effort in uh, uh, looking after the rangelands and regenerating and de- developing the land- rangelands. Uh, to this day, uh, um, this really stood out uh, um, you know, from other properties just due to his uh, uh, rangeland management, obviously his uh, stocking rates, and, of course, the uh, genetics that uh, Keith's been buying and putting into, uh, into Jubilee. What do you think drove him to sort of take the lead there and, and really change it up and show really good stewardship in the area? Well, the writing was on the wall where a lot of, lot of, lot of properties, uh, especially prior to BTEC, were running uh, uh, way too numbers and uh, there was you know, a, a lot of herds throughout the north that were, um, you know, had a lot of feral cattle on them and not only had the feral cattle issue too. You know, in those days, you had huge donkey numbers. So the rangelands were uh, uh, deteriorating quite rapidly, really, and uh, um, yeah, a lot of that showed back onto massive floods they had in the in the 80s and everything, uh, where um, you know that water was uh, actually uh, running off the land systems instead of going into the land systems and causing massive flooding with the Fitzroy River. So the writing was on the wall, but Keith obviously picked up on it uh, very early in the piece. You know what he's done there over that 30-year uh, period, I suppose, has really reflected on uh, what the property is at this day and age. Yeah, and I, when I was speaking to Keith, he said when he first started, there was Brahmin in the area. Um, he was basically told that's what he should be running, but he decided to take a different route with the drought masters. Do you think that's paid off for him? Yeah, definitely. You're, um, with the Fitzroy Valley and where Keith's located at Jubilee and that, it's, uh, it, it is softer land systems, and uh, a lot of your uh, softer type cattle can handle that land system, but you know, further north... Uh, High rainfall areas, obviously the Brahmins are fairly predominant. 
and they thrive in that in that land system. But certainly Fitzroy Valley uh, uh, can handle you know the drought master type cattle, and uh, and they do extremely well in it. Now, obviously, Keith's getting up into his seventies now. Peter, is it sad to say goodbye to a Kimberley stalwart like him? It is, yeah. We've seen a, quite a few go over the last you know, four or five years and slowly dwindling. You know, people that have pretty well made their, uh, the Kimberleys their home and you know, most of them are, uh, are heading south, obviously. But it is, yeah, there's, uh, certainly uh, the numbers are dwindling on the, the original uh, pastoralists that are, um, used to operate and, uh, um, and support the, you know, these areas. Kimberley pastoralist Peter Camp from Calyeda Station with James Liveris. On the country hour, 29 past 12. A few texts through on the fact that the Forrest family, Andrew and Nicola Forrest, purchasing those two uh, successful bidders for those two Kimberley pastoral stations, Jubilee Downs and Quamban Downs stations. And this from John in Wagen. Good news for animal welfare that Twiggy has bought those stations. I remember thousands of cattle dead or dying and being euthanised on an Aboriginal-run station. Salty Matt says, isn't it fantastic how he claims to be looking after the environment on one hand and is digging it up with the other? It must be very hard to know what hat to put on in the morning, Twiggy. Sebastian says, Twiggy somehow always turns it into a personal PR session. What a fantastic person by his accounts. Chinese diplomats present? Asked Sebastian. And this from Paul in Manjimup. Congratulations to Andrew Forrest on the purchase of those stations. A great example of what a hard-working Australian can achieve. And to give back the way he does is nothing short of inspirational, says Paul in Manjimup. You can have your say too on the text 0448922604. This is The Country Hour. It's half past 12. And with an update from the newsroom, here's Brianna Shepherd. Hello. Australia will offer safe haven to some Hong Kong citizens in response to China's crackdown on the city. The Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, has announced existing temporary work visa holders and student visa holders will be allowed to stay in Australia for five years before having the opportunity to apply for permanent residency. Australia's also suspended its extradition agreement with Hong Kong in light of new national security laws imposed on the city by China. Victoria has recorded 165 cases of COVID-19 overnight. It comes as areas of Melbourne returned to Stage 3 restrictions overnight and will remain that way for six weeks. And WA's Police Commissioner has foreshadowed strengthening restrictions on interstate travel in the wake of Victoria's coronavirus crisis. Travel between WA and Victoria already requires an exemption, but Chris Dawson says current arrangements are under review. More news coming up on the hour. Brianna, thank you for that. 29 to 1. The WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. So good to have you along this afternoon and I want you to be part of the conversation that's going to be on very shortly, kicking off shortly and sort of going through to the Mount Barker cattle market results just before the news at one o'clock. It's a conversation about the pros and the cons of adopting a more scientific approach for in-season fertiliser planning using all sorts of equipment 
technology and data. That feature panel discussion is only a matter of minutes away. If you've got a question, uh, you'd like to be part of that conversation, text through 0448 922 Right now, it's off to the Weather Bureau and Austin Watkins, a few eyes looking a little further afield to that front coming through sort of Monday, Tuesday of next week. So maybe let's start with this afternoon in the Southwest Land Division and talk us through until that time. Yeah, sure thing. Well, the today and tomorrow, in fact, the next few days are really going to be um, dominated by a large high-pressure system that's currently uh, to the west of the state and, and uh, over the coming days we're going to see that high pressure system essentially just um, move uh, south of the state and then into the bite sort of by Saturday and Sunday so essentially at the moment we've got ahead of that some shower activity along the south coast and, and that'll continue tomorrow um, for coastal parts um, pretty much to the east of uh, Bremer Bay so that includes Esperance and down to Islight Bay there um, and then as that high-pressure system slowly moves eastwards, we'll see that shower activity um, also contract eastwards as well. So by Saturday morning, it's going to be um, around the Islight Bay area and it's clear up during the day. And, um, and because of that high, we're going to have some fairly light winds and clear skies uh, through, the, um, through the southern parts. So we're going to see quite, quite large areas of um, morning frost, uh, particularly through the um, inland areas. So, uh, yeah, temperatures um, reaching, um, you know, near near freezing for um, a few locations that are that are susceptible to those low temperatures. So we'll see that frost um, through Friday, Saturday, and then um, a little bit of um, relief from that on Sunday in the west, but we'll still see it through those um, far eastern parts. Um, and then as that system, the high-pressure system, continues east uh, through to uh, Victoria, we're going to see a cold front approach uh, the southwest capes on Sunday, uh, probably later in the day, and um, we'll see some showers develop about the southwest capes um, during the afternoon, and, and then by the evening we'll probably see it push up towards Perth and then west to Albany. So um, some showers for those parts and even um, a possibility of a thunderstorm um, around sort of the, the Bustleton coast uh, is, is a chance there. And then uh, on Monday, we're going to see that front weaken pretty rapidly and not really extend any far, anywhere further inland. So we're going to be in this northwesterly flow across the southwest land division and, and the showers will continue in an area uh, around sort of Mandra down to Albany. Uh, and then during the day, um, we're going to see the approach of this uh, next feature, which is going to be fairly significant on Tuesday, but we'll see the showers just slowly creep up um, the west coast and and reach up towards uh, Kalbarri and, and just a little bit inland as well during the day. But um, fairly isolated uh, activity expected during the day. And, and then, yeah, the, all the eyes, and, and rightly so, are on Tuesday where we see that significant cold front come through. And that's got a, a fairly good um, uh, connection with the, with the tropics there. So it's going to bring a lot of moisture down. So we're expecting um, particularly heavy falls and a widespread activity along the west coast and um, eventually it will reach uh, through the central parts and, uh, and eventually in uh, eastern parts of the, uh, of the ag areas as well. So the best of the rainfall as always is always going to be uh, in the western parts but certainly uh, thinking uh, at this stage you know sort of five to ten millimetres uh, widespread through the, um, the uh, western and central ag areas and up to sort of five millimetres in the eastern ag areas as well. So um, but with that, we'll see some developing um, sort of fresh and gusty winds ahead of it. So Monday will be uh, yeah, sort of fresh and gusty northerly winds. And then uh, on the Tuesday, we'll see some fresh and gusty northwesterly winds ahead of that rain. So, yeah, we're watching out for that too. 
All right, then. We'll uh, keep tabs on that as the week progresses tomorrow and then into Monday. Uh, Northern and eastern parts of the state. Austin, what can you see? Yeah, well, once those showers clear away from the Euclid Coast, uh, sort of by Saturday, so we'll see it tomorrow and, and during Saturday clearing away, there's not, a lot of, not much rainfall to speak of really through the northern and eastern parts. With that high building, uh, as I've mentioned, we'll probably see some fresh uh, to gusty east to southeasterly winds through the northern half of the state, particularly through the, um, the Pilbara and, and the Kimberley. So that'll, that'll create some fresh, uh, well, some strong wind warnings uh, off the Pilbara coast uh, over the weekend. And um, with that next feature approaching on Monday, we might see some showers just developing around the Shark Bay, uh, Denham area later in the day. Um, otherwise, uh, yeah, the cool conditions will also be through those um, sort of goldfields, Eucla, uh, southern interior and southern Gascoigne areas um, through the next few days as well. So some, some cold mornings to start with uh, and some areas of frost. But, uh, but otherwise, uh, not, not much else to speak of through those uh, northern and uh, outback areas. And any warnings for this afternoon? Uh, no warnings uh, current. Great. Austin, thank you for the wrap. I appreciate that. This is the Country Hour and it's 23 to 1 o'clock. And to the rainfall figures now, just looking back over the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning, Richard Hudson in the studio. Yeah, and again, nothing at all in the northern and eastern forecast districts. It's all down in the south. Uh, in the lower west, Rolly Stone had five. In the southwest, four acres, six, and the same for Scott River. Walpole Forestry had five. And then the majority of the rain actually fell in the southern coastal region where it is needed. Albany, 11. Albany Airport, six. Barrett Meadows, 17. Bremer Bay, six. Shane Beach, seven. Dalyup Park, 17. Denbarker, five. Denmark, eight to 12 mils. Erin Air 6, Esperance 10, Esperance Airport 6, Hopeton 5 to 8 mils, King River 6, Munglin up 5 and the same for Narrow Cup West, Oak Marsh Farm 8, Pleasant Valley 7, Tolina Downs 6, The Duke 12 and Windrush had 6 mils over 3 days. The WA Country Hour with Belinda Varaschetti on ABC Radio WA. Great to have you part of the program this afternoon between now and the news at one o'clock. Off to Mount Barker just to see if those cattle prices are still right up there. There's been quite a run on cattle prices here in Western Australia. I think going back over the last two or three weeks, so we'll see if that is continuing uh, with Tracy Kilner just before the news at one. 22 to one. Now, if you're spreading fertiliser today, I'm wondering if you're confident you're going to get value for money or to be more precise, are you confident you're applying the right amount to make the largest amount of money possible. With so many variables in farming, is it even possible to be confident? <laughs> what I'd like to know from you today is, how are you making your in-season fertiliser decisions? Jeff Bend farms about 40 kilometres north of Muck and Boudin. Here's his current plan. Well, I have got um, nitrogen to, to spray on, but I won't be doing that until it looks like the crop's going to need it or, or it's going to, you know when it rains sort of thing. So, yeah, I'll be holding holding off on that for a little while because, I mean, our crops have only, like I say, um, very far out of the ground at the moment. So are you using all the latest whiz-bang computer technology associated with modern precision ag? Or are you a bit old school like Jeff, making fertiliser decisions based more on, I suppose, what you know about your farm, your soils and the local weather conditions? More of a feel, I suppose. The text number, 0448... Nine double two six zero four. Keen to know how you actually make your decisions, particularly on in-season fertilisers. Well, today we're joined by a panel of top shelf experts: Wayne Plusky, 
who's had about 30 years' experience advising farmers with variable rate fertiliser decisions. Would that be right, about 30 years, Wayne? Yep. <laughs> you don't, don't look that old. Uh, Narrambeen farmer, Justin Fidge. Yeah, no, not top shelf, Richard. Not top shelf. <laughs> False preview on yesterday's show and today, sorry. Yeah, you'll cop it for that. <laughs> and Ben White, who's an engineer from the Condinen Group who conducts independent research on all sorts of ag equipment and technology. Okay, hello. Yeah, good to be here. And probably not top shelf either, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, you, you might have oversold, but let's see how we go. <laughs> I'll start with you, Wayne. Roughly how many farmers, Wayne, do you think there are in WA who you'd estimate are applying the right amount of fertiliser at the moment? I'd probably ask how many farmers actually know what rate of fertiliser or probably more the, the rate of return on the fertiliser that they're applying because the rate of the return is actually determinant of the right rate. Um, in agriculture, particularly in fertilisers, um, we tend just to plan, plan, plan the whole time when it comes to rates to apply. Very rarely do we actually measure the impact of those to figure out what the optimum rate is. We, we really lack a measurement stage. Would many be using precision ag tools, though, to, uh, to base some of their decisions for fertiliser applications? Uh, the data would suggest it's probably 7 to 10% of farmers who are actually doing that. That's all. Ac across Australia, yeah. Um, I sat down with a grower the other day. He, was, he is using variable rate technology. He said that he thought this should be making him money, but he doesn't know if it is making money. And I think it's that is it making me money bit that's got the other 90% sitting on the fence. So he's decided to dip his toe in the water, but he's not enjoying the benefits of the pool yet because he doesn't actually know if, he's, if it's working for him. He's like all of us, I think. We realise that if you put the right fertiliser rate on the right spot, logically you will make more money. But we are still wondering if that is actually occurring. And until we can prove that and demonstrate it, and the, the case for using it becomes so overwhelming that we start to break down a lot of the barriers to its adoption. Until that happens, there'll still be a lot of people watching the early adopters and seeing what happens. What's the main problem, though, in not using some of the technology and the data that's currently available? Uh, well, it's, it's wasted data. Uh, across the world, across other industries, even in the agricultural industry, we hear that data is king, big data, Good data is everything. Agriculture and particularly fertiliser decisions is probably the, one of the most data-rich things you could come across. Yet we're not using that data to make decisions. And, you know, we just heard the weather, weather report. Um, there'll be people out there who'll probably phone me after this and say, do we need to put 15 or 20 kilos of nitrogen on? Um, we'll go through some sort of discussion and, and probably end up with 18 kilos. Uh, we know that yield is the biggest determinant of the optimum nitrogen rate. We know from the data that they've got that that yield varies across paddocks and across whole farms. In coming up with that decision, we will ignore the biggest determinant of nitrogen rate that we have evidence for. But if I'm not so fussed about not utilising the data that is currently available in my machines, if, I'm, if I can let that one go... Uh, what am I losing if I'm not using this technology? I'm, I'm, I'm losing 
money, aren't I? Yes, yes. You, you, if, you, if you're putting too much fertiliser on, so let's take nitrogen because people will be doing that uh, at the moment. Um, most advisors I've spoken to will say that if they're within 20 kilos of nitrogen of the optimum rate, now I don't know how they know what the optimum rate is if they're not measuring it, if they're within 20 kilos of that, then they think they've done a good decision. So that's probably, if they're 20 kilos too much, costing you $25, $30 per hectare, which is, a, I would have thought, a reasonable sum. And if they're too low, they might be costing you $100, $150 a hectare. Justin, we've pulled you up not only for lunch, but we've pulled you up from, you've been spreading fertiliser today. Um, roughly, roughly how much do you reckon you'd spend on fertiliser a year? Uh, yeah, year in, year out, between three and $400,000. But I'm purely upfront, generally applying my fertiliser. And what are you basing your decisions on to apply your fertiliser? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a, a, a broad sweeping approach. I put as much on as crop to deliver an above average yield, um, but not by much. Uh, on previous records of yield, that's, that's about it. But have you taken a look at some of the tools that are available in Precision Ag, the, the ones that are available before? Yeah, years ago when I um, first met Wayne as well, um, yeah, I participated in some of the earlier technology and, yeah, it was, uh, it was good, but then, yeah, it was if, when the technology affecting like the yield maps and the biomass maps and all that and the prescription mapping, when the technology failed, that's, you know, in applying different rates, that's where things come unstuck. So you were having problems with the, the technology itself. Is that it? Yeah, more the um, that old adage, everything works great when it's new, but once you get a few seasons under the belt, and especially with, um, you know, revised technology all the time, case in point, you just change your GPS or your, or your um, componentry when you buy a new machine. Um, it's updated all the time. That's when it gets a little bit more expensive. So now your approach is more sort of old school, a bit like, uh, the people in the, I suppose, the 60 years and above bracket, would you say? <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. You're older than me. <laughs> but um, no, I've, I've sort of gone a little bit of a different track, but still embracing what I did. And I, I may still do in the future with variable rate. Um, I farm to contour and soil type and sort of a, a prescription farm, for want of a better word. Whether that's the right way to go or not, I'm not sure. 13 to 1, ABC WA, this is the Country Hour. You are right in the middle of a feature discussion today talking about the pros and the cons of adopting a more scientific approach for in-season fertiliser planning. There's a panel here ready to take your uh, two cents worth or a question if you have it and a few questions coming through and comments on the text 0448922604. Richard, I'll just go through some of the texts and if the panel would like to pick up on those, uh, jump in. This one says, could you ask your nitrogen panellists why they think urea is still $520 a tonne? Is it 
It is a petroleum-based product and that has never been so cheap. Are we being taken advantage of as farmers? That's from Max in Hyden. Tim and Eunice says, know what's in your soil and what your plant requirements are. Can't make historical assumptions for everything. Soil testing is cheap, says Tim. George's advice is don't listen to an agronomist. Thank you, George. And this, in-season fertiliser has too much loss compared to pre-sowing or in-furrow. So got to have a benchmark and try to get it out pre. Top-ups are better achieved in liquid form to get less atmospheric losses. Richard? Wayne, I'll let you comment on Tim's, that second one, if you like. I'll take the first one. I'll cop it on the chin because I don't think we have an expert on the price of urea at the moment. But I did happen to chat to uh, one of the leading companies involved in the sale of fertiliser because that text came in nice and early and he said it's a simple reason why urea is $5.20 a tonne and that's demand. Demand from March to June worldwide has been very strong and when demand's strong, the price is strong. Everyone wants it. Did you have a a comment about Tim's to do with uh, soil testing, was it? Yeah, I will make a comment about the first one, about the price of urea. I mean, that's something that... uh, most of us can't do anything about. What we can do is figure out how to best use that, whatever we've paid for it. So whoever's asked that question, I'm imagining has a very good handle on the cost-benefit of their urea. So they would know how many dollars they're getting back for each dollar that they're putting into it. So they could adjust that accordingly um, if the price goes up. And likewise, they'd probably adjust it if the grain price goes up or down. In regards to soil testing, soil testing has been a great servant um, to the industry. It's, it's been the, the, the top technology we've had. It's still very reliable, especially for things like pH. Um, one of the problems with soil testing is that it is very site-specific. And if we've got people taking one um, small site as a sample every, let's call it 50 hectares, it's quite miraculous how that's being extrapolated out to the other 49.99 hectares that it's meant to represent. So there's a whole heap of other sorts of technology and equipment that's out there, isn't there? I mean, we've got satellite imagery, you've got plant samples, soil probes and samples, all sorts of weather data that's historical and current crop modelling. What else is coming through that you're trying to use and the data that you're trying to use from that technology, Wayne? Uh, What we're seeing is that there is a lot of yield data, I mean, and yield is king, no, no doubt about that. That's where profit gets driven by. Uh, we're focusing on the one single variable input of fertilisers, and we're using machine learning techniques that, that everyone else is using in everyday life. What is that? What is machine learning? That, that's taking known inputs to predict known outputs, and agriculture has, has delivered up so much of this free data year in, year out, being captured by the main determinant of profitability yield. But is machine learning actually using a big supercomputer that we might have seen on Get Smart? Uh, is it actually putting in all the, the numbers and making sense of it? That's probably a very good way to describe it. If I give you an example of um, something like green on brown, um, I don't think people are going to say that's a silly use of the technology. The way I had it described to me was it's, it, machine learning allows you to find the gold nugget in amongst a mountain of data. Would that be an accurate description of it? Yeah, yeah. It's taking data from all, all places, all places, um, 
and using using things and techniques that our brain really can't get around you know so so how does um tesla figure out how to drive a car those sorts of things um face recognition how does that work you know me mortals like us don't know that but if we know that it does work we're happy to use it Ben White from Condinen, you go to ag shows all over the world reviewing all sorts of machines and products and technology. Are you excited about this, these sorts of developments of all of this equipment and the machine learning, etc.? Oh, technology uh, rings rings the bell of most engineers, I think, uh, Richard. And I think, uh, you know, as you say, we do get around and, and see a lot of new tech and we, we also get to see uh, potentially where that could be applied on Australian farms. So, yeah, I think it's exciting. I think it's interesting. I think the, the, the key is going to be that um, it, it's got to be able to be used and, and uh, that's, the, that's the hard part. You've specifically taken a look at protein monitors. What are they and why are they useful? Why could they help farmers make fertiliser decisions? Yeah, I suppose um, uh, protein monitors uh, have been around for a, for a while now. Um, in fact, uh, one of the poor buggers that I went to uni with uh, started doing some protein mapping uh, 20 years ago, um, taking random samples off the clean grain elevator in the dust. And I'm sure there's plenty of old guys out there that say, you know, that's how we used to harvest, mate. Don't you know, toughen up. <laughs> um, but he he, he realised that there was some potential benefit from a, a precision ag perspective. Um, looking at, at protein maps and, and, and then being able to potentially apply fertiliser uh, or, or inputs in general uh, based around that as well as yield maps. So it's combining those two technologies. So, yeah, we've had a look at them. There's only really one manufacturer per se, um, So uh, and, and that's an Australian-based uh, uh, manufacturer. Um, but we've done a lot of case studies as well, talking to growers as to how they actually use the technology. When they first came out five or ten years ago, they were pretty expensive, weren't they? I hear I heard they were up around maybe forty grand or something like that. Yeah, thirty-five to forty k. Yeah, yeah. Have they come down? About twenty, twenty-five. Yeah, it depends. I, I think um, on uh, on what machine it's going on, etc. Some are a little bit easier to fit than than others. Um, but yeah, so so the price has come down considerably uh, over that period of time, and it also has a lot to do with with volume of sale as well, obviously. Do you think that original price put some farmers off for for good of getting them? Oh, for sure. But the other thing is that people don't like like being on the bleeding edge as well, mm. Richard. I think that one of the one of the challenges with in, implementing technology on farm is that uh, you know, and we we heard before, you know, if technology doesn't work, you can easily get put off by it. And I think you know, it's got to be well ground proven, it's got to be reliable, it's got to be backwards compatible. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of things about technology that, that need to work before that they're readily adopted. Have you chatted to growers about them? Yeah, sure we have. And, and as I said, we've done uh, a few case studies. And in fact, just this week, I was chatting to some growers who are using protein monitors and, and, uh, and we're having a chat about what they're using it for. And, and certainly nitrogen um, decisions are, are being based on, on some of the, the protein maps that are coming back, but they're also obviously using it for segregation at harvest as well. So we're talking about um, box full by box full of, 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 uh, of grain as it comes in off the harvester and they might segregate that. One grower I spoke to had um, six field bins set up and, and would segregate based on protein into those, uh, into those bins. And, of course, you know, you've got things like load optimisation with, uh, with wheat. Um, these guys are using it for barley as well to just hit that malt window. So, yeah, there's, a, there's quite a few applications. 
Justin, do you think the that CBH's relatively new quality optimization rules associated with the, the load net, do you think that would be disincentivizing growers to be a bit more precise in monitoring their protein levels if everything's being averaged out a bit? Oh, marginally. Um, just touching before, I'd like to know if there's any forays into grain analyzers that weren't just protein. Um, if they analyze grain on what other elements are missing in their, in their growth. Um, and there's your more precise soil sampling over your whole paddock. But as far as with CBH goes, I only use uh, grain optimization just to, yeah, increase the overall price of my grain. Um, Fiji, what would motivate you to adopt more precision ag tools for your fertiliser decision-making? Uh, if there, like we discussed earlier today and just previously, if there was a, a cheap... Um, reliable grain analyzer in a harvester and if you could uh, use all that information on the go that would give you much more precise soil map soil mapping of your paddock and then you wouldn't have to extrapolate like was pointed out before you know one hectare over 50 um, yeah that and if you could uh, prescription map effectively and and reliably with that sort of technology, if you could put that into practice, I, I would have no hesitation embracing that. Gentlemen, we are going to have to leave it there. Uh, Wayne, at least you've got something to work on, trying to make things a little bit easier for farmers. I'm sure that's the holy grail, isn't it? All this data, if you can make it easier for farmers to use and understand, then I'm sure the uptake will be a little bit quicker, as well as if the price comes down, of course. <laughs> well, Wayne Plusky, thanks for your time in the country. Hour. Thank ben you. Ben White from Condinan and also Justin Fidge from Narrambeen. I can hear those sheep uh, bleeding in the background. You better get back to them, Justin. <laughs> yeah, I love sheep yards. It's where I learned to play spin the bottle. <laughs> thanks, Rich. <laughs> On ABC WA, three minutes to one. Time to get to the markets, the Mount Barker cattle market today. Numbers were down nearly 600 on last week's sale with a small yarding of 940 head. Tracy Kilner is at the Mount Barker sale yards. How did it go, Tracy? Prices were mainly firm on last week with just a softening of some lines following last week's highs. Lightweight wiener steers topped at a record 460 cents while the lightweight Angus heifers topped at 382 cents a kilo. Heavy cows saw prices top at 290 and heavy bulls at 276 cents. Grind steers weighing between 500 and 600 kilos sold for 300 to 350 cents and the lighter weights made from 330 to 362 cents a kilo. Grown heifers weighing over 540 kilos made from 3.28 to 3.38 cents, and the under 540 kilo weights sold from 2.84 to 3.48 cents a kilo. Yearling steers made from 320 cents for plain stores up to 448 cents for the lighter weights, and from 330 to 438 cents for weights over 400 kilos. Yearling heifers returned 250 cents to 356 cents, depending on quality. Heavy weaner steers remained firm at 430 cents, while the lighter weights sold from 385 to 436 cents, averaging 429 cents a kilo. Weaner heifers returned from 320 to 366 cents for weights over 330 kilos, and from 310 to 382 cents for the lighter weights. Heavy prime cows were firm, selling for 262 to 290 cents. Medium weight cows made from 254 to 298 cents. Boners sold from 230 to 240, and the store cows from 220 to 225 cents a kilo. 
Heavy bulls eased two cents on last week, selling for 260 to 276 cents. Medium weights made from 236 to 316, while the lightweight bullies sold for 250 to 340 cents, depending on quality. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you for that. The big news today is Andrew and Nicola Forrest purchasing Jubilee Downs and Quandon Downs pastoral stations in the Kimberley, although traditional owners in the Kimberley have launched a last-minute bid to stop the sale of Jubilee Downs. We'll follow that throughout the day here on ABC. Time for the news, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.